God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is a Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Hello, everyone. Um, what's fun is that, yeah, I'd, I'd planned to preach this message from this text, and then this was the text for the wedding yesterday, which is pretty cool. And so we heard, the, heard this same passage read during the sermon and, and, and in, the, in the ceremony, and Matt shared some thoughts from this passage as well yesterday, uh, which is pretty great. So we're doing it again, everyone. Um, we are uh, continuing our little hiatus from the Book of Romans, which is where we've been for the majority of the year. Um, we're taking a little break from that, um, and we're in a, in a little mini-series that I've called The Second Orthodoxy, which I draw a reference from last week as well, um, how the gospel of grace creates a culture of life. And then this idea of the second orthodoxy comes from Francis Schaeffer, who talked about, in his writings, the idea of there being two orthodoxies. The first orthodoxy being the, um, the orthodoxy of, of um, doctrine. Right? Orthodoxy of, of doctrine, and the second one being the orthodoxy of commun- community. So what it is we believe together, the, the, the gospel truth, the gospel doctrine, and then what that truth then creates in, amongst a group of people, right? the gospel culture, this, this orthodoxy of community that comes out of the gospel. And, um, and we, we define this word orthodoxy as well, because this is a word that you don't use a ton of the, the, the time. And we just simply define it as simple, true, biblical, authentic Christianity, like as opposed to heresy, not as opposed to like a different kind of Christianity, like as opposed to heresy, right? So you've got orthodoxy, the real thing, as Jesus taught it, as handed down by the apostles, proper Christianity versus heresy. Um, and we, we identify this problem that we face as a church and every church faces everywhere through time, and that is that we can be content for mere right belief. We could be content for just orthodoxy of, of belief, orthodoxy of doctrine, 
and fail to let those actual beliefs actually play themselves out among us and let them create something that actually honors the truth of the gospel and honors the Lord together and it produces, we can fail to let it produce an orthodox culture. This is an orthodoxy of doctrine, an orthodoxy of culture. The statement of belief on a, on a church's website does not equal an orthodox church because those beliefs need to actually be lived out, believed, lived out, and produce a real orthodox gospel culture. And so that's the whole idea of this series, and we're spending some time looking at the second orthodoxy, not necessarily the right beliefs. We've been doing Romans all year. It's been awesome. But we're spending some time thinking about, okay, what should the gospel do here among us? What should this culture look like if we are to be faithful to what we believe, right? That's the whole idea. Um, you may have been in your life part of a church that this disconnect was real, visible, and painful. You might have been part of a church that had much emphasis on right belief and yet little attention given to the actual health of the culture of the church and how it is that those things should shape us. And I think, look, in the past, in this church, we've obviously had our seasons, probably, where, where this has been a problem as well. Um, and by God's grace, we are as much as we can, leaning into what God actually has for us as a church, letting the gospel land in our church. Um, so I don't think it, this is necessarily like a... I don't think we're that church with the big disconnect presently, but we're capable of it. And I say that because I know that I'm capable of it. I know I'm capable of this. I think that as a church, if we're not careful, if we kind of just go into church mode, you know, uh, what's, what's, what's the idea? Like... Um, Autopilot, that's the one. If we're going to autopilot as a church, we can begin to have this disconnect where what we preach from the stage, what we believe as a church on paper, what we all agree is good and right and true together, our orthodox doctrine, we could get into a place where we can actually say something from the stage, believe it, all agree with it, and then unpreach it with our culture. So if a visitor walked in, they'd go like, well, they say that, but then they do this. They don't really believe it then, because it's not, there's a, there's a disconnect, right? We are capable of that just by kind of going on autopilot as a church. We don't want to do that, do we? We can, let me give you some examples of how this might look, right? We can preach the gospel of grace in this church and believe it and yes and amen it and sing about it and then go right ahead and unpreach it by the way we maybe lack patience with people, by the way we maybe uh, fail to give people time and space to grow in their knowledge of God, the doctrine of God's grace must produce in a church a gentleness, a culture of patience where people do have actual space to do business with God in, in a safe environment, right? The gospel of grace must produce that in a church. Another example, maybe we can preach um, the doctrine of reconciliation. And then as a church, go ahead and unpreach that doctrine of reconciliation by the way we fail to pursue each other. By the way we um, don't allow ourselves, by the way we actually, well, by the way we don't, by the way we get comfortable with relational distance from each other. Maybe even bitterness because of past hurts. But friends, the doctrine of reconciliation says, or produces in us a culture where we're not okay with that. It produces in us a culture of, 
of forgiveness. Because what Christ has done for me must produce in me a desire, uh, a willingness to both receive forgiveness from Christ and then forgive my brother. This, this can play out in a million and one ways. Um, our church can build a culture where, as Paul says in Galatians 2, a church which is out of step with the truth of the gospel. A church out of step with the truth of the gospel. The beliefs are held, but they're not real because they're not lived. And so we want to fight against that as much as we can. This is the idea of the second orthodoxy, right? Um, I've got a little formula for you, which is um, from Ray, Ray Ortland. This is his little, his little clunky little formula, which I appreciate. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture is hypocrisy. We believe it, we don't do it. That's just straight up hypocrisy. That one makes sense, right? Other way around, okay, we've got this gospel culture, people loving each other, forgiving each other, etc. Gospel doctrine, not there. Social club. Fragility. Why? Because it's not based on anything. God's not in the equation. It's, it's, it's not going to last because it's not real. It's based on something else other than Christ. But put these two things together, right? Gospel doctrine, we believe what God says is true. We trust that. And we then seek as a community to live it and believe it and breathe it and let it become our DNA and, and let that authority, God's authority rest on us. We must submit to those things. Power. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture is power. Why? Because it looks beautiful to the world. By this all men will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. Everyone's going to know it once we do it. Power. Let me give you an example. Um, I had two, but I cut down to just, just one. Um, this is an example from the New Testament church where this uh, disconnect got really serious. It was one of the big controversies in, 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 the, in the early days of the church. Uh, one of the most dramatic moments, I think, in the early church as well. Uh, we get a, an account of it from Paul in Galatians 2. might be familiar with it. Um, this is what Paul says in Galatians 2 from verse um, 11. He says, when Cephas, which is another word for Peter, so leader of the apostles, okay? When the leader of the apostles, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Paul, the newest apostle, the kind of like the black sheep of the family because he wasn't one of the twelve standing, opposing Peter to his face because he stood condemned. Paul is giving Peter a serve here about something. You don't want that from Paul, trust me. Um, he says, for, he explains himself, for certain men came from James, so James is also one of the leaders of the apostles in Jerusalem, okay? One of the one certain men came from James. Um, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, eating with the non-Jews, so Peter was having dinner with non-Jewish people. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, because these people didn't think that you should eat with non-Jews. So there's a racial division here. The rest of the Jews, following Peter's act, um, acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that there was a disconnect between what they were saying and what they were doing, I said to Cephas, I said to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? I'm not going to go into the issue itself, but basically Peter believed that you didn't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. He believed that. Um, he goes on to talk about it in, in, in this passage. Peter believed that. And yet, 
he was allowing cultural pressure to deny that truth. He, was, he, he created first and second class citizens in the church, is what he was doing. He wasn't eating with non-Jews. He was unpreaching the gospel in the way he was living. He's unpreaching that you are saved by faith alone, not through becoming a Jew. Do you see that? Paul confronts him. Hey, we, we get down in verse uh, 21, Paul's kind of summary of this. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He said, if you're going to do that, what you're saying is that Jesus died for nothing. Because you don't have to believe in Christ. You don't need you know, rescue from your sin through the cross. You just become a Jew. You get circumcised, and that's all you have to do. You're nullifying the grace of God when you live in that way. Peter was out of step with the gospel, and because he was the leader of the church, he was leading a lot of people away from the gospel. This is crazy. This was happening in the early church. Paul confronts him, shows him what he's doing, tells him, you are nullifying the grace of God. You are leading people astray from the gospel. You are compromising our message through your behavior. Guys, the apostles, we're talking about the apostles here. If they're capable of this, we're capable of this. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture is hypocrisy. We don't want to be hypocrites. No, no one ever wants to be a hypocrite. So, how do we pursue this together? Uh, what does it mean for us to actually let this play out among us? What, what does it mean for us to let the gospel land in this church and let it kind of take root and change the ground rules among us? Um, what happens when we all kind of come alive together to Jesus and we, and we let him have his authority and we all begin to follow him and not kind of what's normal in our culture? Um, we started to answer that question last week, didn't we? Last week, if you were here, we kind of did part one of this and we started with this idea, this, this invitation to come into the light where Christ is, receive healing, receive forgiveness, because as long as in this church there is a pretense that we're all okay and we don't have sin, John says we're lying to, to ourselves and to each other. So as long as, we're, as long as there's like a culture where we're okay with being fake, we're not gonna, the gospel's not going to take root here. So last week we talked about, hey, we can nullify the grace of God by pretending we don't need the grace of God. We don't want that. Come into the light, admit who we are, admit who you are, a sinner, and receive grace. I love that Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote I used last week, right? Dare to be a sinner. It's okay. You can dare to be a sinner. Why? Because the sinners are the ones that get grace. Today, we are actually in the same book. So we're in 1 John again. We're just moving a couple of chapters down from chapter 1 now to chapter 4. And here's our big idea from the text. Beautiful text, isn't it? A classic text to be read at weddings. Here's the big idea. The doctrine of love produces a culture of relational beauty. The doctrine of love produces a culture of relational beauty. This passage is one of those passages that you can just read endlessly again and again, and it just like it never stops being amazing. This is one of those passages, I think. And the passage is actually, it's actually quite clear, right? In, in it, we see really clearly this, this idea of the, the gospel doctrine, the, the, the truth of the gospel, and then also what that should do among us, the, the second orthodoxy, right? the, the gospel culture that it should make. So we're going to take one at a time. We're going to look at the love of God and then what that does in us. 
So firstly, God has loved us, verse 7 to 10. Beloved, I love this, Paul, Peter, John, I should say, John's writing. John calls us, I do that with my kids, by the way. Violet, Lucy, Autumn, Autumn's the cat, right? Which one are you again? Um, It's just, I can't, my dad did it to me growing up, so I'm passing it on. Um, Peter, Paul, John, here we go. John loves to call us his beloved. (laughs) I just love that. He's just got affection for the church. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Isn't that profound? So simple, so profound. When we talk about the God is love as Australians, we almost need to like redefine what love is because we have a weird relationship with just that word. The Greeks have multiple words when it comes to love. We just have the one, right? So for me, it would be normal, a normal thing to say, I love my wife, I love my kids. It'd be normal for John and Abby to say we love one another, right? Newly marrieds. But then it'd be just as normal for me to say, I love slow-cooked brisket, barbecue sauce, sliders, deep-fried jalapenos. It'd be totally normal for me to say both those things. That's weird. That's the same word for those two things, right? We mean different things by that, right? But the first one, I'm like, I would lay down my life for these people. The second one, it's like, I find them tasty, right? And the the same word. It's just, we have a weird relationship with that. It It can mean anything from, yeah. I would sacrifice everything to, it tastes nice. That's weird. John, 1 John 4, teaches us about love. In particular in verse 8, right, we get these precious words, famous words. God is love. God is love. What, what does that mean? I think before we kind of talk about what it means, we have to talk about what it doesn't mean, because this is almost always misunderstood. Firstly, he didn't say, love is God. That's the, that's the most miscom- the common misconception you hear, right? That love is God. What we do when we say something like that is what we're saying is that God is, um, is to be defined by our idea of what love is, like a human vision of what love is. There's this idea that we create. That's, what, that's who God is. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's not what he's saying. Love isn't God. God isn't defined by our small view of what we think love is. God is love. That's the first thing we kind of got to make sure we, we get it the right way around, right? Secondly, the other way that people get off track here is people say, or they, they, they talk like God is only love. God is only love, which means he's not capable of wrath, for example. If we read the rest of scripture, we're going to see that God is, God is love, but he's also holy, glorious, Gracious, all-powerful. Love is one of the many attributes of God. But it is an incredible one. It is an incredible one, but it is only one. So, with that being said, love isn't God. God is love. God isn't only love. He's also holy, glorious, gracious. What does it mean that God is love? What, what, what can we take from this? I think that... The, I'm just going to give you two kind of sides of a coin to to explore that question. The first one is that God is love in of himself. 
Okay? God is love in of himself. Secondly, that God is love in the deepest expression of himself to the world. So God is love in himself, but then he's also love in his deepest expression to the world. Firstly, God is love in himself. Before God made the world, all that existed was God. But he existed as Trinity. Three members, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, coexisting for eternity past. Their relationship is one of the purest love. Fraternity. So what this means, what this doctrine of the, the eternal trinity tells us is that there was a loving community of God who didn't create the world because he was bored. He didn't create the world because he wanted a friend, because he was missing something and he needed something from us. He didn't create us for kind of like to fill the hole that he had in, in himself. No, no, he was, he was perfectly content. Now, the creation of the world comes as an overflow of the love that he had within himself. God is love. God is love in of himself. Other side of the coin. God is love, and that love overflowed into the world. He desired to share that love for the world for his own glory. He didn't need us, but he wanted to share something with us. God created you and I for the very purpose. Get this. This is, this is what the Christian doctrine is about why we exist. God created us for the very purpose of entering into the love that he shared within himself. This is what the gospel is, that we would know Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and walk with them in relationship. He created you to enter into this kind of love that he enjoys with himself and then be a vessel through which that love flows into the world. So we would enjoy that love vertically with the Lord and then horizontally with each other. Isn't that amazing? This is why we exist. This is our design purpose. The um, second century minister, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, famous Bible commentator, he said this. He said, in one sense, the whole object of being a Christian is that you may know the love of Jesus Christ, his personal love to you, that he may tell you in unmistakable language that he loves you and that he has given himself for you and that he has loved you with an everlasting love. Welcome to church, friends. Christ loves you and he wants you to know that in unmistakable language. He wants you to know that deeply, personally. He wants you to experience his love and without that, we can't do Christianity. Let's go back and read this passage again now that, we've, now that we're thinking in these terms. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows him. So why, why are we to love one another? Why does God call us to love one another? Because true self-giving love is actually from him. It's of him. It comes from above. How can we know that we've actually truly met God ourselves? Because we know that love. Because we begin to love like he does. He goes on to explore that more. If anyone does not love, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us 
It became a thing that we could see and touch and feel. That God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. So this is God's definition of love, right? Here we go, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. He sent his son to be a propitiation or or atoning sacrifice is the other way that gets translated for our sin. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but he has loved us. Sent his son to rescue us from our sin. God defines love as a self-giving, sacrificial act embodied in Christ on the cross, dying for our sin, rescuing us from our sin. Friends, this morning, when you opened up your eyes, you woke up into this universe where there's a king on the throne who came to die for you. The very truest base of reality is that this God loves you. That's the universe you woke up in. That's not wishful thinking. This is who God says he is. This is what he does. This is the very truest truth of all things. And today, God wants you to know this. He does not want you to miss this. He wants you to know this, in, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, in unmistakable language. That this is love. Not that you have loved him, but that he has loved you. He has loved you. He has sent himself, he sent his son to die for your sin. Today, you are loved by your maker. And this is love. He's loved you to the death. He's loved you to the end. We said two weeks ago, he's never going to cast you out. You are his. He's loved you with an eternal, incomprehensible love. Incomprehensible. We did Ephesians a couple of years ago, two years ago now, and and Paul prays for us in Ephesians 3. This is what he prays. He prays that we would have the strength to comprehend, the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So the Apostle Paul in the first century was praying that the church would be empowered to have enough strength to begin to comprehend the magnitude of what we're talking about today because we can't physically get anywhere near it. God's love is wide, wide enough to welcome anyone, wide enough to welcome anyone. No one is outside of the breadth of God's love. God's love is long enough to last into eternity. It is stable enough. It began before time in the Trinity, and it's going to last into eternity. It's not going anywhere. God's love is deep enough to reach down into the deepest hell, the darkest sinner, rescue them from that sin. It is high enough to reach to the highest heaven. And Paul reckons in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 3, I should say, it's going to take strength to comprehend what we're talking about to comprehend that very love for us. God's love is something we can absolutely know truly, but not something we can know fully. It's just not possible for us. Today, he wants you to know with certainty his love for you. He wants you to know that today. He wants you to have it fill you and flow out of you into this world. Is there anything holding you back in actually receiving that? Is there anything 
that's stopping you from actually receiving that gift and worshipping him for it? What more can he do to reveal his love for you? He sent his son. As the song says that we sing there, there's no more in heaven left to give. It's, it's, you've got his best already. Ephesians 3 points out to us that um, I think Paul has no doubt in God's love for you, but has some serious doubts about your ability to comprehend that and know that and believe it. I don't know. I don't think. I seriously doubt if any of us have come close to actually believing this for ourselves properly, fully. We just doubt the love of God for us. Don't we? It's, it's just a default position of our hearts, I think. We just doubt God's love for us. In Tim Chester's book, Enjoying God, which we highly recommend, by the way, if you haven't read it yet, Tim Chester, Enjoying God, um, he writes this. He's, he's quoting the, um, the old English Puritan John Owen, and he says this. The greatest sorrow and burden that you could lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness that you could do to him, And then Tim just asked the question, how would you finish that sentence? What do you think the greatest burden you can lay on the heart of the Father is? Owen, John Owen said, to not believe that he loves you. That's a burden on the heart of the Father. The greatest sorrow, he says, and the greatest burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness that you could do to him is to simply not believe that he actually loves you. In this is love. Not that you have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He came, he suffered, he died to reveal his love so that you would know it, so that you would come in, as, as 1 John 4 says, come and abide in it, come and live your life in this love. So this is what we believe. This is the clear gospel doctrine of Scripture, and this passage in particular. So without this, you are outside of the Christian faith, right? But what does it do when we actually believe this together and seek to live it out? What happens when we let this bear its weight upon us? We're going to see that if we keep reading. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought love one another. Isn't that obvious? Isn't that just such an obvious thing? No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Dropping down to verse 19 now. We love because he first loved us. That, is, that order is really important. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not know love. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, who, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whomever loves God must also love his brother. 
a Christian without love is a walking impossibility. Just full stop. There's no, no, there's no such thing as one. Likewise, a church which lacks love, regardless of what the preacher is staying on the stage or what the church is singing, is not an orthodox church. John goes so far as to say they don't know God. They don't know him. Isn't that, that ought to make us pay attention to how we love each other. Guys, we could be listening to these sermons and singing these songs and not even know that we don't know God. Our love among and amongst one another in this church is not a kind of a sprinkling of niceness on top of real Christianity, the good, the essential stuff. It's not. We think like that, don't we? Our love for each other is a little sprinkling on top. It's like the hundreds and thousands on top of a cake. A little sprinkling on top of niceness to make church a bit nicer? No. It is real Christianity lived. We must, therefore, commit to take this seriously, individually and as a church, that we would seek to actually love one another. His love for us in the gospel that we have received must flow out horizontally to our love in one another. Love we receive vertically from Christ must flow out, or John is saying, you don't know him. You just don't. The doctrine of love produces a culture of relational beauty, gentleness, honor, encouragement, patience, sacrifice. These are the things that we are to be marked by as the disciples of Christ. And so in this church, God has changed the ground rules of our relationships. We are to love like he loved us, sacrificially, to the death if he calls for it. Yeah, that's what he says. We are to be known for self-giving love to one another. If you look at the history of the church, especially in the early church, this is what actually like, got the Christian movement traction. The early church knew how, knew how this worked because they, I think, they knew God. <laughs> the early church, Father Tertullian in the 200s, he said um, that the Roman world and the Roman Empire was looking at, our church, looking at the church and they said, see how these Christians love each other. They are even ready to die for one another. The ancient Roman world had a million religions. Christianity was one of them. They'd seen religion before. They'd seen a savior before. They had never seen a beautiful community before, marked by self-giving love. They were ready to die for one another. The world saw that and went, something different here, something genuinely different here. So practically, there's a million ways to apply love, of course, and we're not going to do that in this message. Um, but we've got to get this on the ground somehow. I think the very first step to loving one another as a church is we've got to actually get to know each other more. To live this out, I think we need to know, uh, know others and also be known by others. 
In our church, we do small groups. This is where we, this is where we get to do this at, at depth. And so if you're part of a small group, love your small group well. Love your small group well. Seek to know them. Seek to be known by them. Open yourself up to what's really going on in your life. If you're part of a small group and you're like, you've drifted from the small group because life is hard and you're just like, it's been a while since you've like been felt relationally connected there, can I just encourage you, reconnect. Commit to making it a priority in your week that you would love that group of people. Introverts, yeah, this is going to cost you energy. I get it. We've got lots of introverts in this church. We love you. As a recovering introvert, I understand. Um, I don't think I am one anymore, but I, I get it, right? Yes, it's going to cost you energy. You know what? The Lord's going to provide. He's, he's going to provide you energy. He will. If you don't know where to start with this, can I help? Like, there's, I'll give, like Can I just give you one question to kind of put in the back of your brain for like, I want to love this person, but I don't know how to like connect with this person. Um, so let me just give you a question. Just ask, how have you been traveling with the Lord and how can I pray for you? Is that easy? It feels easy. How, how are you traveling with the Lord? How can I pray for you? And then commit to pray for that person. This is like relationship 101, brothers and sisters in the church, right? This is, this is the basic, basic stuff. How are you traveling with the Lord? How can I pray for you? And then pray. I had one conversation um, recently with someone in this church who gave me permission to share this, um, who sincerely said to me, you know what, I don't remember the last time someone asked me that. But now I think about it, I don't remember the last time I asked someone else that. Like, yeah, I think you're probably describing all of us. <laughs> I, think this, I think this is us, right? Um, my guess is that that's pretty spot on for a lot of people in the room. I've noticed recently a trend here. I'm having that kind of conversation too often as your pastor. I've noticed this. I've had a few people say they feel quite disconnected from one another. 18 months of COVID and church being on and off and small group getting canceled and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, I think it's taken a toll on top of an already kind of disconnected culture, you know, culture of, of tall fences and you know, polite distance. Rosaria Butterfield, she says that modern Christians are um, they're living on a starvation diet of community. The real kind of community, this, the stuff that God actually made us for, a starvation diet, enough to not kill you, but not enough to thrive. We're, we're kind of comfortable with that. And so as your pastor, guys, I've heard this too many times, can I just call you to do your best to love one another in this most basic of ways? Get to know people. Seek to love them. You can't love them if you don't know who they are. Ask them real questions. Hey, traveling with the Lord, how can I pray for you? And if you're getting asked that question, do your best to share, honestly and openly. That's how you can love that person in that moment, yourself, right? The Lord calls us to lay down our lives for each other. He calls us to love one another as he loved us, okay? How do you think you would respond on that day. Have you ever thought about that? What would, what would happen if I actually faced a situation where I was like, oh, God calls me to die here. What would I do in that moment? Like, we, you can never know until you're faced with a situation like that, whether you would lay your life down um, like Christ has called us to. 
But I reckon there's indicators in our life as to how, if we've taken that seriously or not. We can't know for sure whether we'll be like Peter and scatter and deny Jesus. But I think we can know based on what we're, how we're living today. One pastor said this, and then, then I'll pray. One pastor said, if I'm not prepared to give up my bed to go and serve someone, I'm, I can be fairly confident I won't give up my life. If I'm not willing to pursue people who are different from me in order to bless them, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I'm not prepared to jeopardize a friendship so that I can tell others about Christ, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. I'll add, if we're not prepared to open up our home for lunch to someone from church to get to know them more, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. Let me just read and let the word of John, the word of God, fall on us today. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Lord, today I pray over our church that we would once more experience your love in a new way, Lord, in a fresh way, in a genuine way, Lord. Lord, I shudder to think that we could, if we're not paying attention, turn into a church that says we know you, but doesn't, which is revealed by our lives and our lack of love. And so, Lord, would you protect us from that cliff And would you lead us rather into green pastures where these words are true of our church, Lord, that your love abides in us and is perfected in us. I pray that over our church, Lord. Deepen our love for one another. I thank you so much for the, for the ways in which I see this in our church already, Lord. I don't preach this sermon today as a rebuke, Lord, but as an encouragement and a reminder of what's at stake in how we love in this church. So Lord, I pray your word would fall on us, we'd respond in faith, you'd deepen our love for each other and for you and open up our heart to actually know your love for us. Lord, would that love fill us and overflow into our lives, Lord. Lord Jesus, we want to be like you. We want our lives to look like yours. We want our character to resemble yours. And we want to love like you loved. Give us strength. We do not have it by ourselves. Lord, we know that. Lord, we know that your love comes from above, not from in us, but from you. And so I pray now, Lord, that you would, yeah, strengthen us to walk this road of self-sacrifice joyfully, Lord, because it's a privilege to get to love like you loved. It's an, it's an absolute privilege. 
where we don't deserve it. You loved us so well. You've invited us to reflect you to the world, Lord. And I pray now that our church would grow in this, Lord, that I would grow in this. Each and every one of us would have more love day by day as we walk with you, Lord. It's the name of our Lord Jesus who died for us and loved us so well that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.